Pushing Faders in association with SVG Europe Audio. Hello and welcome to Pushing Faders, the broadcast sound podcast. I'm Chris Eckford and joining me on this week's show is Mick Dwyer. For those people who don't know Mick, he used to work as a senior staff solutions engineer at Dolby. It's taken me quite a few attempts to get that one out. It's a bit of a tongue twister. In a way to tie in with the previous episodes based around the evolution of football coverage, I asked Mick to come on the podcast to talk about how Sky and Dolby work together to bring um, surround sound into people's homes for the football coverage. And for those people who have told me that you enjoy the technical elements of uh, the, the podcast, then sit back and fill your boots with this one. Well, thank you for coming on the podcast, Mick. It's uh, quite nice to be joined by a fellow northerner, albeit from the wrong side of the Pennines, but, you know, still. Well, it's um, uh, Wiltshire these days, not the northern man I used to be. But, no, you know, Wil- mm, oh. Return the accent, though, which is all right. <laughs> so just if we get started with uh, the usual stuff of how you got working in TV and how your career sort of got to where it is now? Well, so back in the day, I started off in live sound working, obviously with bands and then also for um, some large PA companies up in the north. And then I got a phone call from a mate of mine who was a, a software programmer at AMS Neve and they needed a software tester. So I went down for an interview and at that point it's like I had to grow up and I had to uh, get myself a real job. So at that point... I started working for AMS Neve as a software tester on the old audio files, mm. digital audio workstation at a time, certainly. Um, then on the back of that, I became a service engineer for AMS Neve and went basically all around Europe and North America, installing mixing consoles and digital editors and all that sort of stuff. So I learned a lot there. And then towards the end of my time at AMS Neve, a mate of mine, Jason Power, said, I've got a new job. I'm going to Dolby. I thought, oh, give me two names. So I... Rang up a couple of blokes down there, um, got an interview, and then basically turned up at Dolby, which most of you will know me from, um, on the basis I did 19, 20 years from. Mm. Uh, started off as um, working in the marketing department, believe it or not, but as an engineer. And then on the back of that, <clears throat> um, became more engineering focused and did a lot of training, obviously, as well, and was involved in the rollout of all things Dolby across the broadcast industry for many, many, many years. I'm now freelance. Um, Dolby shut the office just around the corner from me, so they made me redundant. And 2019, I went out on my own and um, loving every minute of it, my own boss again. I don't miss the corporate <laughs> world. So, yeah. And you sort of sound assisting and bits and pieces like that at the moment, aren't you? Yeah, you know, predominantly at the moment, I'm doing sound assisting. It's sound assisting. I do some low-level guarantee work on the mm. PLP and then... I also do what I call my me, me big jobs for yeah. um, which is audio quality control um, for the Euros and World Cups and such like. For Well, first World Cup I went to was with Dolby 2006 and I've not missed one since. So <laughs> just recently done um, audio quality control and comms engineer for the Rugby World Cup over in Paris mm-hmm. as well. That's what... Run of the mill week to week, I do, you know, my assisting work, which I enjoy getting out in front of people, and it keeps me a little bit fitter than sat behind a desk, that's yeah. for sure. And even this time, are you still enjoying it? 
Yeah, I've got my hand warmers and I've got my big coats and you get home with it, don't you? That's it, you know. I mean, it's been a long time since I've been out in the field, to be honest. Uh, well, it's it's chilly at the minute, but we crack on, don't yeah. we? That's I mean, to be fair, at least you're moving around. If you're chilly in a truck, it's not great because the aircon takes a while to get going and you, you sat Indeed. still. So I'd, you'd rather be out moving, wouldn't you? Yeah, you're going to be keeping an eye on the uh, on me at the uh, Germany Euros this summer, I imagine. Indeed, yeah. I mean, I've been contacted by HPS again and... Doing the well, getting on every guarantee engineer's nerves on the crew, <laughs> um, sitting there and basically working in the quality control department with um, a colleague of mine. But it's, it, I mean, the, the beauty of that job is that because I've worked on trucks and because I've, I've been involved in, you know, implementing Dolby uh, through trucks, is I've actually got quite a good, strong engineering knowledge of both old, um, how can we put it, SDI based trucks mm. and now also the IP domain as well that's coming through. So being the gateway to, you know, achieving a consistent output. I mean, you've been on the end of my four wires, haven't you? Yep. You know what I'm about. Please make it work. Can yeah. we have it in sync? You know, it's all that. I didn't, get, quite, I, quite I didn't one get a day off either. <laughs> Don't tell people off. No, I didn't, get, I didn't get any tellings off anyway. I was, I was fine. Um, so in the first podcast I did with Ian, we obviously spoke about how uh, the evolution of football coverage with Sky came about and became the sort of beast that it is nowadays and obviously Dolby was a big part of going from um, mono to, to the 5.1 stuff that, that Sky started doing just for anybody that, like myself who's not particularly like fully au fait with the inner workings of what Dolby is if you could just give us a brief overview so certainly in the broadcast I mean, I mean Dolby is synonymous with the film environment mm. and to be quite honest with you a lot of the technologies were based in the early days from you know the way that film was mixed and the ability to deliver large dynamic ranges within the home um you know dvd was a big focus they wanted the, the ability to deliver via dolby digital which is a consumer format into the home um large dynamic ranges within films so if we look at the two main technologies that we you know that have been used in in broadcast um there's the the lovely Dolby E. Dolby E is a you know professional contribution format that can carry eight channels of audio across what was at the time um, a stereo-based AES yeah. infrastructure. Um, you know, back in the day when I mean, my first approaches from Sky were Keith Lane rang me up and said we're going HD and we want to do it in five one. So basically, what happened is, is I turned up with a few boxes. Um, showed them what, the, what it was about and then we embarked upon sort of testing and proof of concepts where you know the first job I'll never forget it, it was in uh, a telegenic truck at Fulham on an old S2 analogue and we did some stem recordings in Ian Rosen was mixing Craig Carroll was guaranteeing and uh, you know we, we, we put some stems together with a view that before we had to implement Dolby's technology Dolby and then subsequently the Dolby digital that was used to transmit that to the home we had to get, you know, we had to see if it worked. So from the stem recordings that we did, we then moved into post-production um, studio within Sky and started formulating, uh, Ian and Robert started to formulate a mix, you know, how could 5.1 work with football? And what we found is that there's, you know, it, it, it's all very well and good. You've got these speakers behind you and everything's popping and sounding great, but that becomes quite fatiguing. So... At first, we sort of took the approach of where rather than making it in your face, just, you know, giving a nice balanced mix that wasn't too distracting from the stuff that was going on behind you. That came about 
you know, realistically by one, the choice of microphone at the time, which is still heavily used, which is a sound field. The beauty of that box is that of that microphone and boxes that are associated with that is that you get like a nice phase coherent down mix because still the big thing with um, all things 5.1 or Atmos, which came on later, is that we need to maintain stereo compatibility because ultimately the set-top boxes for a lot of broadcasters, if there was a you know if there was a Dolby digital signal being pumped into that set-top box that was 5.1, majority of people would still be listening in stereo on a flat. And that, that stereo compatibility was important. So, you know, Dolby, grassroots level, Dolby was pushed through the trucks, through the MCRs, through the transmission plants, and then Dolby Digital would be, you know, the audio within Dolby would be transcoded into Dolby Digital, or these days Dolby Digital Plus, which is then sent home or over a streaming service or whatever. So Dolby is often associated with pain it's often associated with complexity but you know the the approach that was taken back in those early days of formulator mix and then the evil word metadata comes about mm. um and the way we, we went about that was you know everybody was saying what do we do about this metadata and i said get the mix right and then you know i'll come up with the parameters that associate to that mix itself so and then in time you know it was all about people getting used to it and switching from mixing in stereo and listening in stereo to actually switching to 5.1, getting comfortable with that, and then realistically knowing that what falls out that falls out the bottom of that down mix bed, um, is, is a good quality stereo. So that's what happened in the trucks really early on. I guess like you, um, a very basic way of describing what you could say what the Dolby, what Dolby did was it's almost a, a zip file to create like a way of transmitting a yeah, big chunk of audio into like a big question back in the days you know back in the days these days we all deal with discrete coming off trucks you know we've got mm. fiber connections we can put discrete audio and realistically that's what dolby would have liked back at the time because the, the constraints that they had as a company is for anybody to actually launch a service to get this extra channels of audio back in a, a phase coherent manner you know no um no no differences between the left channel and say the left surround channel or whatever it was there was no mechanism other than using dolby which effectively took eight channels of audio coded it and then placed that with this metadata um on the pipe because all you know the infrastructure that we were going through at the time was you know mpeg2 um video encoders so it's all satellite based or at best it would be limited bandwidth fiber so they'd still be encoded in in the bt trucks are you know the the point of of contribution back to the mcrs so there was no way of getting those six titles of audio back <laughs> in the early days without using dolby and yeah gave me a good living for a few years <laughs> how um quick from sky sort of saying this is what we want to do to be rolled out would you say have taken well it was the, the way it went is we got a phone call went down had a chat with keith and martin black and I think we did it in about eighteen months from from conception right the way through actually launching it. It was it was heady times really because the other thing that was taking place at the time is that trucks were changing, trucks were being built, trucks were going from you know analog outputs into BT vans to embedded you know HD SDI signals. I mean, and 
at the time, there's another gentleman that I love to mention, Lee Ballinger. He worked for Tektronics, now Telestream. But at the time, you know, that, that transition from SDSDI to HDSDI meant that a lot of the, the basics in terms of cable quality out on the road, in terms of how far you could run it, you know, came into play. So what happened with me is even though I was a Dolby man, I ended up finding quite a lot about, out about video and um, also the timing of stuff. I mean, people say to me, you've made a living out of saying, so look at your timing, because realistically at the point, audio and video were a little bit, what's the word, separated in thinking, because realistically the the signals weren't combining at the truck level often the, the the point where they combined was in like a Lynx truck or something of that look. so it was an interesting time I remember you know non-sync or cameras being connected to vision mixers with no frame synchronizers in it the picture looked great but then as soon as they cut to a an RF camera that had a different time in playing not only the Dolby audio but all the audio disappeared you know so yeah. all those sort of learnings to take place within the game it was a it was it was fun time, definitely. What was the biggest challenge to overcome with it all then? I think half of it was education. You know, the realistically, it's, you're moving from a part in industry where technology was shifting, things were getting faster, and like with any rollout of any new technology, you know, um, we're seeing this with the IP environment at the moment. There's there's some great SDI engineers. As soon as you go near IP, it's a very different way of thinking. I think the time we spent a lot of time sort of educating through outside broadcast companies, myself and Lee Ballinger, he did the video bit, I did the audio bit, British Telecom, um, went right the way through them, we went through Sky, and then subsequently we moved on, you know, to, to BT when they were um, using it. And, and from what took place at Sky, I suppose it became the norm for the rest of Europe to go. So at one point it was we were putting Sky on air, but then as soon as Sky had gone on air, Canal Plus in France were going, the Germans were going. HBS were heavily involved in trying to promote it and still are um, well involved in, you know, future sound formats and 5.1 and Atmos at the same time. But I think education was definitely the bit that took the time to do to get people comfortable with it, whether that was a, an MCR operator or whether that was a, guarantee engineer or a mixer himself and it it was providing the confidence for people standing behind him and giving him tips and advice to uh, that enable the technology to you know become pretty much de facto standard as it is now mm. how did like getting the down mix to something that was sort of coherent did that take much trial and error or was it well um we mentioned metadata obviously two of the parameters within metadata are the downmix coefficients. And where the metadata had come from, you know, the, the core set of metadata had come from, it had come out of an engineering um, environment in, in Dolby. And their whole idea was give digital broadcast the ability to deliver large dynamic ranges, but that then were then compatible to flat panel television, 5.1 stereo and all that stuff. And there was, there was a, a default setting of metadata where, the the downmix parameters were quite coarse in granularity. So as an example, it all relates to the little chip that sits within the set-top box or the flat panel TV. They had, you know, a, a limited um, number of values you could set these to. So the idea of deriving the, the pretty much standard um, 
down mix coefficients that we use now, which is minus three from the centre, early to the left and right, and then mm. minus six out rears, came about through listening tests and also, to some extent, the restrictions that we had within the technology itself. If we look at um, some of the down mix parameters that are evolving through Europe, we're now in a position where the centre down mix of minus three dB still exists, whereas some people are now starting to push the surrounds more into that stereo mm. on the basis that they feel that the information that is in the surround channels is is um, needs to go into the stereo. I mean, it's that it's the age-old question, do you keep what you've got in terms of a stereo or do you add more to it from resultant information that's being passed down from the well, down-mixed into from the, the, the surround channels? It's tricky, isn't it? Because I guess at some point it becomes mushy with like too much yeah. information in the stereo. Especially for like a, the, the sort of, I'll say crap speed because you would get in a flat panel TV at home. It's you know you don't want too much going through there, do you? Well, I mean, but then there's other parameters within the metadata. You know, the dynamic range control, which effectively is a, a companion element of of the Dolby Digital system, where you can deliver larger dynamic ranges. But if you've got a you know an output device on a, an iPad or a flat panel television, you can you can restrict or reduce that dynamic based upon expanding mm. profile, which is uh, everybody knows as film light within podcast industry, which enables some delivery of quality. Because the big problem was is that at the same time where we were going HD, the we'd moved away from you know, digital broadcasting was in not a great state based upon the fact that back in the old analog days, you had a very limited dynamic range, PPM4, you shall not pass PPM6. <laughs> um, and as a consequence, one, lots of people were mixing like that, but two, the back-end transmission technology was enabling delivery of much larger dynamics and people were getting it wrong. And that's why we had the loudness issues that came about at that point of HD transition. Did, was there much um, technology taken from the film industry then to, to make this work or was it? I mean, it, that's where Dolby came from. Yeah. You know, then I think the parameters are the initial metadata parameters that were formulated as default settings effectively were come, came about from, you know, when they were taking a Hollywood feature film and trying to put that across a, mm. a digital transmission system. So that's where the initial focus started. And to be honest with you, my first job with Sky was looking after their, I think at the time they had four Dolby Digital 5.1 film channels, which was a damn sight easier than putting an HD service on there. You know, obviously yeah. in, in the transmission environment, it was a digicart feeding through some processing that then pushed it out as a 5.1 movie. So mm. parameters for the film offering of Sky were definitely different to what became or what's pretty much become the de facto standard for, you know, broadcast mm. in terms of sport and such like. And the reason for that is, you know, if you're in a post-production environment, you can produce your mix and you can associate um, bespoke metadata mm. to a particular production. However, in the live environment, you don't have that luxury because it's it's in your face, obviously. So, what what came about was a preset of metadata, or often a couple of presets of metadata that are pretty much used, I won't say worldwide, um, but certainly Europe-wide, where the idea was is 
the approach of get your mix consistent, get your mix to TV broadcast standards, and then we'll wrap better data around it. And that's effectively what has taken place. So I, I, I use the term you mix through the metadata mm. so that you know that what you're effectively seeing on the flat panel stereo output is still good. And what you're you know, dealing with in terms of a 5.1 offering for somebody who's got the speakers around. Um, so you're optimising a number of listening scenarios. And that, that was done through a preset of metadata based upon the way people were mixing and knowing what the transmission system is doing down the line. I guess nowadays with things like soundbars as well, you are getting people who will be feeling benefits of better quality audio there as well, won't they? Yeah, I mean, certainly audio has been the poor brother of the TV game for a long time on the basis that at the same time all these HD these HD services came about, you think about the the listening devices in the home. We went from having reasonably large televisions with speakers that pointed out the front, you know, to things that look very pretty on the wall, but I'd six speakers the size of 10 pence pieces on the back that were firing backwards and it it became a um it became an issue for the broadcast i remember having discussions with people at sky saying this is really an issue you know tv audio is actually degrading because of the 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 playback devices you know flat panel tellies whereas you know we're improving at this end but the delivery from the tv manufacturers is not brilliant i mean that has improved and certainly sound they've found a way to sell sound bars therefore they'll sell a sound bar yeah if you look at some of you know the, the pretty mainstream glass you know flat panel televisions that are about now people are spending more attention on the quality of audio i remember i went to a meeting at sony and um the thing that blew me away was the the screen technology where they actually modulate the screen so wow. you get like localization of, of of dialogue you can buy those tellies now and, really? and and then you've got obviously sky glass which is that's optimized for atmos but also that the audio reproduction is something that is is, is much much better than mm. the average flat panel teller yeah don't to be fair i think the sky glass thing came out just after i left so i don't know 100 about it but it does have speakers all around the um, TV, yeah. doesn't it? Yeah. It's in, you know, there, there's a number of them out there now. I mean, that seems to be Dolby's focus these days. Um, not having been there for four or five years, I can't tell you where they're up to. But you know that uh, you, you look around the consumer environments and you're seeing a lot more flat panel televisions with the Atmos enabled or other, you know, enhancements to sound that do make it better for the person sat in the home itself. I do think with the soundbars as well, that people have got that opportunity to have a better quality there and not need to worry about putting, you know, five or six speakers around the house and annoying everybody with them. When I first turned into, when I first turned up at Dolby back in the day, I remember sitting in a meeting and I thought I was going to get sacked. I said, biggest problem you've got, your main competitor here isn't DTS, your main competitor here is stereo. And what I like to call spousal approval. <laughs> you know, a lot of people I know that had 5.1 systems at the time didn't have the speakers behind them because, let's face it, nobody likes wires floating around no. the room, did it? No. Obviously, things have got a lot better with that. You know, there's the wireless technologies that are out there now. So then, obviously, the, the transition from 5.1 then into 5.1 plus 4. Were you still at Dolby when that started? Yeah, well... To be, what the route there was is that obviously 5.1 was pretty much established certainly in the UK market for delivery of sport and across Europe and then from the cinema environment they came up with Atmos Atmos being um, object based audio 
uh, within the cinema where they could rather than you could you could throw a you know effectively a sound source right the way across the, the listening environment of a cinema. And from that came the spin-off of Atmos for, for broadcasting for streaming services. And the way that we went about it there, I went down the same sort of route. I heard that Telegenic were building a new truck, T25, 2014, 15, something. And um, while it was in base, I rang Foz up, Simon Foss. I said, Foz, can we put some speakers in the roof, please? And he went, what for? I said, oh, they've got this new stuff coming through. Can, you know, we want to see if it works. So... Our first outing was we had no product at that point. We had very limited experience about how this stuff was going to be mixed. And we went and did the Confed Cup in Brazil with T25. So we had on on the left of the truck, we had NHK, which were doing their 22.2, which was based upon what they call a scene-based immersion. So effectively many, many point sources being captured in the East of like this thing, like a, a microphone that was like a big Terry's orange. Right. Segmented with lots of different mic. Uh, wow. It was, it was a lot bigger than my head, put it that way. <laughs> I think locating it was uh, something that was difficult. So on, on one hand, we did experiments where NHK were, you know, in a little truck next to us. And then C25, we started off with, we, we worked with a sound field. And then, at that point in time, Felix Cruckles, who was working for Lavo, and Christian Goble, obviously, who was HBS, they came up with taking what was a double ORTF microphone arrangement. And then the, I, I nicked it, nicknamed it the Felix Helix, but it was effectively a double ORTF, both top and bottom. And that's where, well, that was a forerunner of what's now called the ORTF uh, 3D microphone, which is you know, by HBS for, for world events. So microphone techniques were changing. Um, but I remember sitting there with Foz and, you know, listening to this and thinking, actually, this is making a difference. We were trying all sorts at the time. Maybe, you know, uh, as the as the crowd swelled, you'd sort of hold a little bit of compression on the 5-1 and let the tops go. And it was like, oh, it was, it was I mean, it, it was interesting times and, so really, I think the first sort of foray that we went into as Dolby was what 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 was required and how again how we're going to deliver it. So what we came from is this mix worth doing? And, and at the time, we, we believed it was, and that's pretty much where we stand now. Obviously, with Dolby built product um, to get the systems, you know, to get the signals up on air, and realistically, we went from having Dolby E, which was eight channels of audio. To a, uh, a named technology, which was ED2, which was effectively two sets of coded audio of eight channels each um, and metadata, which enabled you to pass that again in a phase coherent uh, manner into downstream transcoders, which took it from Dolby, uh, sorry, from Dolby ED2 to the new transmission format, which was Dolby Digital Plus jock which was basically Dolby Digital Plus and this joint object coding which enables us to deliver a stream into the home that basically was if you were listening in 5.1 you could listen in 5.1 if you were listening in stereo again you could listen in stereo but if you had an Atmos enabled soundbar television or AVR it would effectively extract that high information and, and put it where it was. so the approach was similar similar in the way that we went around it um the metadata, you know, in, in trucks these days, you have 
um, session files that are, again, preset related based upon um, UEFA contribution, Sky contribution, mm -hmm. or, or at the time BNT contribution, now TNT. So we, again, we've gone down that route of rather than manipulating metadata actively, metadata is we mix through it to enable us to achieve the deliveries into the home of Atmos 5.1 or Stereo. So when they were talking about objects-based audio, what, um, how would you describe that as a, as a concept? There's a belief in, in certain areas of the industry that what people want is they want the ability to personalise their listening experience in the home. So in the, in the 5.1 days, certainly, you, you, you would produce a 5.1 mix, which effectively is, if you like, scene-based, depending on what you put into it. And the user in the home has no control about, um, has no control on the, the subtleties of the mix. I mean, one of the one of the, the things that sort of object-based audio came about and we thought would get more traction at the time was the ability to increase co uh, dialogue content within a mix. So people with aging ears, as, as we all get, you know, um, have the ability to make the dialogue more intelligible. Um, I think realistically what's taken place in the broadcast environment is that the ability to manipulate individual objects with their own metadata in the home um, has not taken off as uh, I believe Dolby and some of the standards bodies thought would, would do so in the past. So effectively now, even though it's Dolby Atmos um, is capable of delivering object-based experiences, it's the downstream transmission and device side which has not sort of um, isn't enabled to a degree we can effectively create this personalized experience in the home change the commentator change the language yeah make it louder i mean that that was the the holy grail and it probably will come in time but you know i, I sat on standard bodies for a good couple of years that we we went over the same thing but it's the adoption and it's it's that adoption from the public there is that adoption from the um the manufacturers of the the end devices there so i guess with things like that, it becomes a bit of a gimmick as well like oh, i can t i can turn the commentary off but then you're like well i've turned it off now i'll turn it back on and it's it's finding that the the usage that were that yeah. that would work for everybody not just like the little messing about things that people would do with stuff it, you know it, it it needs something that i guess yeah i mean it's it's the flexibility is there within the technology, whether the use case is there within, or the hunger for that use case within the industry is there yet, is yet to be seen, I think. Certainly for, you know, visually impaired um, environments or, you know, have, have hearing difficulties, there is, there's, there's definitely legs in having this object-based approach where they can, you know, if, if, if you obviously can't see something and you want to tune the best experience having that base you know having that object's flexibility will enable those experiences for people with impairments but it's it, again it, it comes down to what are the broadcasters delivering and what are the um, consumer manufacturers prepared to take on the way that so, uh, certainly my approach when we were and working with you know um NEP and working with Sky and working with Telegenic and whatever. We, the way we approached it is, again, the, the technology is what it is. And the metadata was preset and defined. But the 
you know, when it comes down to actually pushing the faders, we wanted to enable an environment where it wasn't an extra burden. The mixer. The, the way we approached it is that, okay, you're adding an extra dimension in terms of the, the plus four up above you. Um, and there was a an authoring tool, which was known as a DP590, which is both a, a metadata authoring tool and also a emulator. And what this box enabled you to do, because the consoles weren't capable of, of, of dealing with, you know, 5.1 plus 4 busing or monitoring, um, this this box enabled you to render a five point one. Uh, sorry, to to replay a five one four, and then obviously a five dot one um, with a push of a switch, and then obviously your resultant stereo as well. So the idea being is that as you're pushing the faders, you're still producing the mixes, and you're just switching your monitoring control. So that was that was something that was definitely the the, the approach we took in terms of the technology. I mean this this ED two which is effectively two channels of coded audio like Dolby E, was metadata, a different level of metadata that was associated to that that did need to flow right the way down the chain to enable the transcoding from ED2 to Dolby Digital Plus Jock, joint object-based coding, mm. which was, was very important. So at a technical level, things that cause problems when dealing with ED2 is one... People don't load and send the metadata. Um, so we've, I've heard of situations where the week before they've been working with a, a UK broadcaster and they've gone to a European broadcaster and the button's not been pressed or there's been an IP yeah. address on an encoder that's not been set correctly, which effectively meant that the metadata that needs to be incumbent within the ED2 being passed down the, the chain to, you know, to the transmission point where it's transcoded to Dolby Digital Plus Jock. Um, getting sent so at that point the although all of all the meters are going and you know you're listening in a discrete mode without emulating that metadata everything's good further down the line things are bad so that's a, one of the things that i still reiterate is if you're using metadata you know within dolby or ed2 make sure that those parameters are correct and make sure that you're listening through it because if you don't listen through it, you can have it. I remember there was an incident in the very early days. I got pulled in by the BBC and got all right beating for it. But um, somebody had effectively disabled the metadata in a studio environment, which meant that the um, uh, Eurovision Song Contest went out in mono. So even though it was, you know, even though things were being set correctly, it had been disabled. Right. So, by transmission, that metadata wasn't present and it went into a reversion preset. So, the technicalities of it are, is if you don't understand metadata, I've got some very, oh, there's some very interesting reading on the internet, it will keep you mm. well, well awake at night. But um, the other thing is, is just if you're working in an environment, say, as a guarantee role, understand what those presets are and have the ability within your truck to identify that metadata, that via um, a Tetronic scope or other devices, but be cognizant of it because it will bite you if you don't get it right. So, I mean, that's at a technical level, metadata, check the metadata quality. Is it set correctly based upon the preset you should have been provided? And then secondly, check for errors because the big thing about um, when you're dealing with a coded audio stream, 
is that it's based around a frame of vision. So in the PCM world, we have individual samples of audio, and if we drop a sample of audio, we don't hear it. Mm. But in the in the coded audio world, because you're dealing with a, a frame of coded audio, if you drop one sample of that that frame, effectively what you do is you're putting a hole within, within the audio. So what causes those holes? Timing. You know, we've got... Uh, asynchronous vision feeds compared to that of of um of the of, of the console or the console switch to maddie in your gearbox and you get slight variations in timing certainly hdrcs um which are used within hdr uh, productions i've many times i've seen those boxes post embedding causing problems with audio you reboot back so uh, at a technical level You've got to ensure data integrity. The same sample that comes out of that Dolby encoder or ED2 encoder, it's the same sample that's got to get across the network. When you think of it that way, it's actually quite a, a big ask. Yeah. But it's, um, those, are, those are the bits that, that get your timing all day long, Yeah. quality of metadata, and basically working to the presets that have been defined. My first experience of metadata was uh, I was doing um, something down at Glyndebourne, you know, the opera uh, place down near Tunbridge Wells, that area, and it was going out in cinemas. From the we were sort of taking a feed from like a house mix, and it was going out in cinemas, and had to program the the blue um, DP five seven ones. Yeah, but four that of them. That thing is shorter. Yeah, I've got enough of them in my life. Yeah, just four of those, and I was like, oh my god, there's got to be a better way of doing this than. Tell me about that, yeah. Tell me about it. <laughs> Top of the truck like that, yeah. Yeah, the, the old uh, cis trucks uh, that Televideo bought, they, they were like high up, so I'm stood on a swivel chair trying to program four of them with... Because um, obviously not... safety in the workplace then, Exactly, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that was my first experience, and I was like, this has got to be an easy way of doing this. <laughs> I mean, those boxes, I mean, given them the due, those DP571 Dolby encoders that sit in a lot of trucks, they've lasted. Yeah, yeah. They've lasted a long time. But yes, I would suggest. That. I, I mean, I, at the time, I went back um, to the R and D people and said, "We've got a serial connector on the front of there. Please save me fingers and my back." But it never happened. No. So one finger got shorter and my back got worse. And that's it. So, <laughs> yeah, as I said, looks luckily. I mean, most jobs you work on, there's a preset for them anyway. But um, was things like going like center channel only for dialogue a, a decision made like via via Dolby, or was that more of a, a production based? Um, if you look at the US, what they do is they put um, they put uh, dialogue straight down the centre, and that's it. Uh, in the UK, there was a decision taken where we came across well, they came across this idea of diverging across left, centre, right, and I think and um, some of the reasoning behind that was based upon if you were going from uh, a stereo presentation piece within a, a show. Uh, you know, like a studio environment or into a commentary environment, you weren't getting that collapse in, in the audio. But there was, there was another argument that went about, is that if we put some of this uh, dialogue in the left and right, we can make sure that people hear it in the home on the basis that they might not have the centre speaker where there's meant to be, blah, yeah. blah, blah. Yeah. Now, that that thinking I was never really fond of because uh, most people who were into 5.1 and were listening to 5.1 were savvy enough to set it up, mm. even though that's a very small percentage. Where diverging um, 
dialogues across the left, centre and right became an issue was at the point where you do your fold down. Yeah. Because effectively you're taking that left and right signal that's already got um, dialogue within it and you're taking a centre channel and you're pushing that into the left and right signal through the down mix process that happens in your flat panel television or your set-top box. So at that point you then start to get some differences between your standard stereo um that you're pushing out the, the back of the truck and what's being perceived in the home so there's an argument around there personally i think if you're doing it next six you, you know like you drop in um left and right channels with respect to the, the mm. you know the channel by next six i think it, it, it get, you get away with it but it's a it's let me tell you there's been a lot of conversation about that over the years yeah, but it's it's it, it evolved that way and it stayed that way to be quite honest. It's funny when you obviously working for BT and or TNT and Sky, which they both do it differently, but I, I don't see any positives or negatives in, in either way of doing it. It you know, as long as your mix is good, it's good in it, and, you know, it, it, whether you've got centre channel on it or whatever. No, it's it, it, it you know those presets came about for different reasons, mm. but you know there are slight variants to the presets. But realistically, it's all about achieving the same thing: getting a the premium five one four, the five one that's resulting from that, and but more importantly, the stereo to be of a good quality. What have been right? that, Sorry, we spent a lot of time in the early days trying to make sure that you know the, the down mix that was coming off the desk was the same as the down mix that was coming off the renderer. Yeah. Uh, Atmos because we didn't want to cause complications like that. Things move on. Um, there's thinking that if you're putting all these extra microphones out, why do you want, why, you know, why shouldn't you have those in your stereo mix? Two schools of thought, that's mm. two schools of thought there. One, do you need them? Often less is more, as you know, um, or include them within, in, in the mix that realistically is your main stereo output. Mm. Well, we're right in thinking that when, the Atmos stuff first came out, the idea was on your mobile phone, you'd be able to adjust the mix so you could have commentary louder or you would be able to like tailor more mixes for, for things like listening on a mobile phone or. Yeah, definitely. That that was the object based element of it. Yeah. You know, that if you sent the commentary elements as a single object, there's nothing stopping you then changing the gain of that, um, of that particular object, no matter where you place it yeah. within a arrangement, um, to suit your listening environments. But as I mentioned, that the, the hunger for that from the industry really hasn't transpired. No, I mean I know on the uh, Amazon games, Amazon Prime footballs, you, you have the option to take commentary out, which seems to be quite a popular um, option. Yeah, I mean that 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 does give you the option to do that. I mean, and again, it's down to the well. The mechanism of delivery to the um, to the portable device or to the home mm. itself—it's it's your choice. You, you choose what you want to do. Do you think now there's more of um, like with having fibre and whatnot, with more of a bandwidth going with more discrete audio is like the future of it? Or oh, without shadow of a doubt, you know, I mean, in terms of transmission, you're never going to get to that. But in terms of contribution, you know, the realistically, Dolby for a good few years have not really been interested in. The contribution side of the business that mm. they didn't want to sell boxes that did Dolby or AD2. They wanted to enable the transmission, right. you know, that the you know that enable the the service into the home or into the set top box or the handheld device, whatever. So 
as and when you know bandwidth became freer the use of coded audio is is it's not required you know mm-hmm. that that's up and bottom of it bang it through as, as pcm but only on the basis that you've not got you know sample shifts between groups of sdis and stuff like that and that took a long time to come out of the and uh, to fall out of the industry you know we used to have situations where people would work with discrete audio across mm-hmm. eight or two groups of sdi and the second group would be a sample or two samples out compared to the first which did impact upon you yeah. Your output that was being down mixed from that five one because you've got massive cone filtering, you mm. know. But that seems to have left the industry and certainly discrete audio in the outside broadcast environment is is the norm now. Mm. And let's face it, the the way it's all going is down IP routes, isn't it? So at that point it's there is no need for a coded audio stream to bit to be passed on through a contribution environment. If you look at the bigger world jobs everything's discrete yeah. because we have the pipes to do it yeah it's the the reason why Adobe came about and ed2 came about is it's it's the enabler to get the technology to the home when the broadcast industry wasn't ready to be pushing discrete audio around that's um, I, th- I think people who's wanted uh technical information is gonna have, uh, be lapping this up today oh we've gone too far for them maybe <laughs> <laughs> but thanks that's all been great that's all um it's, it's, it's i think it's, it's a nice follow-on from especially we like chatting to ian about um the evolution of football coverage in general um and onto this now obviously it's it gives us more of an idea of why we do things why we do things i think yeah i mean certainly if the people are if people are hungry for information there's on the websites on the dolby website still there's one there's there's one uh document that everybody who's guaranteeing our engineering with coded audio systems should have and that's the dolby alignment mm. you just type in dolby alignment on google it'll pop up at you that is that is the bible in terms of where this dolby coded frame needs to sit relative to your video and then anybody that really can't sleep at night <laughs> you want to check the you know a guide to dolby digital metadata because it's it it it, it makes sense when you read it yeah. and when you use it but it's boring, I'll tell you, you know. It, it's, but it is, you need to understand not every parameter of metadata. Like I always say, it's like my old exam results of C and 3Ds. Channel mode, how many channels you're pushing down, dynamic range, down mixing. So, Did you see that on your screen? Oh, what was that? So when you put your thumb up, a balloon appeared from the side of your head with the thumb in it. Did it? Yeah. No, I didn't know that was happening. <laughs> If you're looking at the three metadata parameters that you need to be cognizant of in a big way, it's the C and 3Ds. Channel mode, dialogue normalization, which effectively is your loudness level, um, dynamic range control, and down mixing parameters. If you get those four right, things will happen. If you get mm. those wrong, you'll get complaints. Bad things will happen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Do you still, obviously, now you've left Dolby, Dolby um, and you're doing your own thing. Do you still keep up with um, what they're up to? Yeah, to an extent. You know, obviously, I've still got some ex-colleagues that I sit and have a chat with. Um, you know, occasionally they pull me in if there's been um, situations with jobs out in the UK or whatever mm. where they've had to with um, contribution. I'll I actually, you know, I'll go and work for them. Mm. So it's the basis. But the I think 
the emphasis that's being driven through Dolby at the moment is that Atmos music is he's, he's making some ground. Mm. Um, I also think that there's quite a large play going for Atmos music within the vehicles as well, so within yeah. cars. Now there's some spanking new expensive motors that have got some sound serious sound systems yeah. in it. Um, obviously, in terms of where their R and D's going, I don't have that in anymore. No, no. So, I mean, the beauty of that company there was is that you would be able to interface right from the top from some of the scientists that mm. were there down. So, I mean, obviously, I'm I'm not up to speed with what they're up to now, but I certainly know that Atmos Music is playing quite a big part in their business at the moment. And are you are you enjoying life more since you uh, went? freelance for yourself no don't get me wrong great company to work for don't owe me a penny sent me away to japan for for 12 months it was life-changing yeah brilliant experience but the beauty of it is is i don't wake up on a monday morning reach for my phone and look at those 40 or 50 emails before breakfast yeah to say that a man is regressing or is semi-retired maybe the approach that i'm looking at (laughs) But yeah. I love, I love, you know, I love working in the in the game. Love the people, and you know, it, I've, I've had a I've had a great goal. Mm. You know, and the other thing that I'm doing a little bit of now, certainly for EMG, is uh, I've been doing some training of um, juniors coming through. Yeah. So me and Dale have been putting a bit back in, and like next week I'm doing some Atmos training for EMG guarantees. So mm. I'm familiarising people with the technologies that are already out there, and I, I get a nice buzz out of working with people. That's good. People, that's the, that's the best part of it, isn't it? You'd save yourself a day out and just point them in the direction of this podcast and say, just listen to that. <laughs> <laughs> but th- thanks for that, uh, Mick. It's been great. Um, I always ask people this question as well at the end, but it's what's your favourite service station? As a generalist, I'll say the one with Greg's on it. I've, I've developed here <laughs> over the last few years. Pasta, pasta, you know what I mean? But um, uh, my favourite service station. I think it's got to be Strensham. Strensham. Yeah, half, halfway between Manchester and home. Is that, I mean? is that the M6 somewhere? M5. M5. I don't, have I been to Strensham? Top end of the M5. I think it's called Strensham or something like that. Yeah, I've heard of it. It's got a Greg's on it. It's got a Greg's. <laughs> is, that the, is that the tick box ticked for you? Greg's done. Basically, health food on the road, isn't it? You know what I mean? It is. It? It is. <laughs> it's because it's got it's got the nutritional value of paper most of it. So. Oh yeah, yeah, looks nice. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much for that. All right, mate. And uh, I will see you in a car park at some point. Massive thanks to Mick for coming on the podcast and taking the time out to chat with me about uh, all things Dolby. And as ever, a massive thanks to everybody who tunes in and listen to listen to the show. Now, I do hope that the um, people who have got a thirst for the technical knowledge will have uh, been thoroughly quenched with that one. A bit cheesy, that one, it? but, you know, that's, uh, that's me at times. Anyway, moving on, um, joining me on the next episode of the podcast to talk about his career and, amongst other things, later with Jules Holland is Tudor Davies. So that episode will be out in a couple of weeks' time. Until then, I hope you enjoyed this episode and I'll speak to you soon. <laughs>